Welcome. To a bed with Stev. Episode 67. Manscaped 20% off with the code STEV. Welcome to Mac and Me this month. So, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? Today, we're interviewing a guy who ran the Barfly music venues in London and all over the UK. His name's B. Oh, you saw it. Was that a fart live on Mac and Me? Mm. Yeah. Let's open some letters. George from. Hold on, let's read it. Are you relaying a story? So what Max says is he's not sure about the future of the letters because he doesn't like being asked questions. He's got enough to say already. George from Carlisle says, what do you think about the future of cryptocurrency? He says he doesn't quite understand it yet. But he's open to ideas with finances. Yeah. Dad. Max says, why are you interrupting my lunch with this? We'll do one more question. Jenny from Michigan. Doesn't say what part of Michigan. Says, Mac, what are you liking fashion-wise this year, 2023? What's impressed you? <laughs> is it all a bit silly? They say fashion is so vulgar it has to change every six months. Yeah. He says he likes the big oversized boots. Right, any other messages for the listeners? Enjoy your food is the message. See you next month. What a wild ride. Right, good evening, good afternoon and good morning. This is Bev with Stev. I'm here with B. 
B, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, yeah. We're here today in Crouch End. My first time here for about 15 years. Because we're going to go over B's life story, which is very interesting. How would you describe yourself? I think I'm a man that's had sort of three completely separate lives in one life, really. Uh, one as um, a musician. Well, I th- it's 35 years in the music industry, but one as a musician, one as, you know, a poacher turned gamekeeper turned over to the industry side of the music business, running music venues and an artist management, involved with an artist management company and festivals. And then about seven years ago, I walked away from all of that and have just set up a, a, I'm a freelance photographer and videographer. So, yeah. Great. <laughs> so the first stage, where are you actually from? You're from London. Uh, I actually grew up in Cambridge and then moved to moved to London to escape the den of iniquity of uh, drugs and uh, yeah. Is that going on in Cambridge? Drugs. There was at the time in the music scene in Cambridge, and I remember my 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 lovely little Italian mama just being absolutely crippled with fear of me going to London. Oh, you're going to get involved with the drugs? It's going to be terrible. I'm like, yeah, mum. If you had any fucking clue, I'm actually going to London to get away from drugs. So yeah, had a period of sobriety when I landed in London and just had a mission that's it I was gonna get my music career properly on track and yeah and so you founded a band was this your first no, band that was successful I, I, I was recruited by this crazy guy um Troy for I don't know seven or eight years and it was a proper love-hate relationship in terms that he was an absolute genius but he was also an absolute fuckwit at the same time so he wrote the songs or and you were the singer yeah he was very that's always a difficult yeah it was because back then i was a kid and i didn't i i didn't understand the music industry i didn't know about publishing i didn't know about you know you know record i didn't understand any of that i didn't understand prs i didn't understand i still don't well (laughs) i tell you what Back then, I knew absolutely what, what I knew about the, you know, the business side. You could have wrote, wrote on the back of a postage stamp. So I was ripe for the exploitation. And, you know, he made a deal sort of made a deal with the devil, basically, where he was like, I, I write, you know, regardless of what input you put in, I'm the songwriter. We split the band evenly. You know, we, you know whoever's in the band gets a, 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 their cut of the band. He says, I'm the manager at the moment because we don't have a manager so I take take a management cut so yeah he was taking a management cut he was taking all the publishing and he was taking you know a a third you know at the time there was just me and him he was taking you know 50% of whatever revenue we were going to get if we ever signed a record deal Um, and that sounded like I didn't really when he said I'm doing the publishing I just thought what is he writing a book I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about so he knew though he knew exactly was he older oh yeah yeah he was a good 10-15 years older than me but he saw something in you. What were your influences as a performer, singer? Oh, God. Oh, man, I, you know what? That's a really tough one to answer. Were you copying someone? Everybody is when they start. Mm, uh, I, I sort of had a bit of a U2-y sort of voice, but maybe a bit more edgy than that, more sort of John Lydon meets, meets, you know, meets Billy Idol meets Bono. You know, it was a, a proper mix. And you did get somewhere with this band. Got, What's this band called? It was called Das Psycho Rangers. Um, in the 80s in the 80s yeah and we you know we were famous for for not being famous basically you know we do one, you know we were in lots got loads and loads of press you know got some TV shows we were on a, 
quite a famous TV program that was going at the time called The Tube. Uh, so you met Jules Holland, yeah, was that? Jules Holland. And was that uh, Paulie Yates? Paulie Yates was still there, yeah. Uh, you know, and we were actually, when our show was being recorded on the other stages, there was Paul McCartney, Fine Young Cannibals, and the Pet Shop Boys. You met all these people? I met met all of these people, yeah. So um, Anything memorable there? What did you say to Paul McCartney? I remember Paul McCartney watching a sound check, and I just about, I shat a brick the size of a, a small sliced loaf. Uh, him watching me sound check, it's like... Paul McCartney I wasn't really much into the Beatles at the time but it's yeah. still fucking Paul McCartney this is like 1986 or 7 yeah, is it yeah. so right, they're not right. very he's not doing very well himself is he no but even so he's still Paul yeah. McCartney yeah, yeah. and you know in terms of a music. he might have been looking at you guys though it's like right this is what's yeah. going on well, now I mean he was going oh yeah wow he says yeah that was you know that was really you know and he actually comments says, yes, that was great mate yeah along the lines yeah I won't do his accent but yeah he thought he thought we were like yeah he stood there and was sort of he approached us afterwards and came up so that's great it's really interesting I really enjoyed that and blah 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 so that was quite cool the guy I'd make form this band with a guy called Troy yeah as talented as, as he was you know he was just such a divisive sort of self-destructing individual that we'd do these deals and we'd fuck them up as quickly quickly as we could do them well i ain't business people are they usually yeah. especially if they haven't had a he business had a job business side to him as well yeah. he was just in some aspects he was a genius in other aspects he was just a total megalomaniacal mm. fucking train wreck and how come you're not like that you you were yin and yang. Uh, yeah, I think so. Well, a lot of people probably thought I was at the time, but you right. know, we were all part of this gang. I mean, the core of it was another guy, a friend of mine called Jules, who I'm still absolutely love. He's my best mate still, and we still remain friends after all these years. Mm. Troy, you know, I probably probably wouldn't slow down if I saw him crossing a zebra these days. Would you recognise it? I probably would recognise him. Is he on social media or anything? No, not even looked. Like I said, not even looked and not even going to look. You know, mm. so I've not seen him for 20 years. And, you know, the time before I'd seen him after, you know, that 20 years ago, I haven't seen him probably 10 years before that. And I'm well, quite you, happy with that. It's yeah. like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I have absolutely no interest in him or what he's doing. He was... You know, he could be a pretty vile individual. You know, as talented as he was, he was pretty vile. So this band went to New York. How come and what happened there? I know we're skimming here quite quick, but you've done yeah, some well, stuff. we fucked up our deal yeah. here. Yeah. But you're a rock star, really. Yeah. You're living that life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were recording in, like, Your some, rent's paid? West. We, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're on retain. Oh, that's in Notting Hill, yeah. right? Yeah, we were recording in West, which is the same studio. Literally, while we were recording there, we recorded the Feed, recorded the, Feed the World record. Right. right. Whilst we were in, you know, literally making our records at the time. So, yeah, and at the time, you know, I was a kid. It's barely 20, 21 years old with a record deal with my rent paid and money in my pocket and access to any club in London I wanted to go to and, you know, doing photo shoots every other day and interviews. And I was amazing. It was an amazing time. And then literally it all stopped. 
instantly. We had a, you know, we had a falling out, you know. Oh, it's because of a falling yeah. out. Troy had one of his grandstand meetings with with Jill, Trev, you know, Jill Sinclair, Trevor Horn, Steve Lipson, and basically threatened to kill them, you know, if he were put in the studio with them again, and blah blah blah, and it, this whole. Uh, there's, always there's uh, hinders a diplomatic yeah. process. Yeah, there's a lot more to it. But basically, they just turned, looked at each other and went, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. How fucking dare he, basically? Get we're, Wham on the phone. We're, yeah, we're putting food on his table. <laughs> yeah. and he's basically, yeah. you know... Sort Delusional of, artist. Yeah. They told us to fuck off, froze us out completely. We were four days away from a sellout tour with a band called The Mission. I don't know if you remember that. Rings a bell. We were booked to go out on this tour. It was a totally sell-out European tour, four days away, and we're in Nomis Studios rehearsing, and the guy, this guy came in and started packing, a tech came in and started packing down the microphones and said, uh, oh, yeah, you're... Well, like, what are you doing? He goes, don't you know? He says, your tour's been cancelled. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's how, how quickly we found out how things were going to go. Who was that guy? Like the undertaker of the music industry? He was just like some guy that worked at Nomis. That, yeah, they'd, oh, they'd yeah. obviously called the studio and said, session's cancelled, we're not paying for it. Yeah. But did you have an audience? Yeah, I mean... Could you have carried on? We'd already, yeah. Because this happens all the time. No, we already had, a, like, national TV by then and like, mm. had, like, double-page features and all the music magazines and... You know, we had an audience. We had an audience, and it was it was like it could have gone very big very quickly. Mm. As it turns out, you know, when you sit around, when you're at that stage of your career and you sit around for two years, people sort of make up their own minds. Right? See, that's the thing. I've got mates who had the record deal at 21, 22, yeah. and they're a bit mad now. Yeah. And they didn't. It seems like, from my perspective, is that you got the audience, but you let it go because you don't, you're not getting paid and shit, you know. Ben, you're not a business person; you're like yeah. an artist, aren't you? We let so it go because we were, we were injuncted. We couldn't play live. We couldn't. We oh, couldn't. Really? Yeah, we couldn't record. Couldn't do anything. Yeah, it was an absolute. Oh, oh, you're banned. Oh, I thought you were saying you couldn't play. You weren't that good, but you were banned from playing. No, yeah, yeah. They properly, properly put a stranglehold on us. Shit. And we did another small deal here, but it was clear that we were in the wrong place at the wrong time because the whole rave culture had started by then and Acid House and we're like, we need to get, we are guitar musicians, we are a classic, you know, we are, you know, we fall under sort of the banner of punk, pop, rock. We do not fall under this banner, and we're like, well, let's get out of this. So I mean, it's difficult anyway. We went to the States to sort of like try and try and find somewhere that, that fit and cut a long story short equal shenanigans just basically same shit different day we did some deals and fucked up some more deals and this went on for seven years and at the end of seven years in the years, US yeah and so are you legal in the US I was that's another yeah. whole story uh, but yeah you got married or? Year, yeah at the end of the seven years including the bit that had happened in the UK mm. I just went I can't do this anymore. I'm just—I know more than I ever wanted to know about the music industry, and I'm not sure I want anything else to do with it. So, when did you come to that? What year is it, and where are you? So, this would have been five years on from when we first started, sort of eighty-five, eighty-six, about eighty-six. So, yeah, probably. So, in eighty-six, you're in New York. Yeah, and then there for two years so we were there till about 88 then went, we went to LA because we did a big deal with a management company during that time I you know at various Hollywood parties I met Sylvester Stallone I met Cher 
God knows who else. Sounds great. Yeah, it was weird. That was weird. You know, we used to meet pops, you know, icons here. It was one thing, but just meeting them there, they just didn't seem real. I knew I was talking to Sylvester Stallone. Stallone's quite short, isn't he? He is, but I'm short, even shorter. So yeah, he was still quite big to me. So. Right. Any no, funny interactions? No, I just hearing that. Oh, it's the Lord, and I'm sure, I'm sure. It was just it, it was almost so comical yeah. that I'm like, what the fuck? I'm but he's quite a funny guy. Way. It is, but it was just it was so the situation was so comical. Mm. Manscaped. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Manscaped. We're back. Shave your balls. Spring has sprung and our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming, have the best tools for some spring cleaning in your pants. Trust me, your confidence will be blooming like the flowers. Look your best this spring and join the other 8 million men who trust Manscaped. Use code STEV, S-T-E-V, can be caps or not, to get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. That's 20% off. Free shipping anywhere in the world, babe, with the promo code STEV at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Hi, welcome back. We're in Crouch End. I did it, I was just saying, I did a gig here 15 years ago in a pub. And it was like one of these things where I have to bring the PA and play Maggie May and all that, play covers. And me and my dad were talking to this guy, and he said, Yeah, I wrote Sailing. The song Sailing by Rod Stewart because I covered Maggie May and like things like that happen here in Crouch End. And isn't this also where Bob Dylan lived in the 90s and he went looking for Dave Stewart and he knocked on someone's door and asked for Dave and it just so happened that the guy was called Dave that lived there. Have you heard that? No. That's apparently in Crouch End. Yeah. Well, so, you're, in the right, the right, you're in the right territory. You're in the pub. We're in the pub where the Kinks used to hang out. It's called the Queens. Right. And, and Conk's down the road. So it's Kinks land. Yeah. yeah. So Conk is down the, ro- down the road, which is owned by Ray Davis. Yeah. And going the other direction towards the centre of Crouch End is uh, the church, I think it's called. Okay. And that was owned, owned by Dave Stewart. It's not yeah. anymore. I think it's might be owned by Paul Epworth now, but like the Adele Records made there. And yeah. Yeah, so we're here, and we're in 91. We're in a weird sort of hip-hop era. Yeah, I sort of went, you know, I just threw in the towel with my cohort, Troy. And how did that happen? I dropped a mic in the middle of a a gig and walked off stage. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was it. And what triggered that, do you remember? I just... You ditched a gig. You did a Liam Gallagher. You kind of... Yeah, it was sort of like the second from last song or whatever it was, yeah. Um, I, it was all about basically we'd done a big publishing deal and once again he'd managed to sort of bully it into the situation where he was going to be controlling the funds me and Jules just went well basically if he puts the money into the band then we carry on and if he trousers it then we know he's a fuckwit and it's time to ditch it all and yeah we barely, the ink was barely dry and he made it perfectly clear that most of that money was going straight in his trouser pocket uh, and so you did the whole gig knowing this and you just thought fuck this so in your mind yeah. it's like you know yeah I hadn't talked about it with Jules I hadn't talked about it I, mean, I just went a switch just went off in my head and, and said, you're like I hate this song anyway I'm out yeah <laughs> it's a shit song <laughs> it's a shit club right yeah and so I just like, literally mic drop walked off 
even after putting my own band together again after that. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, oh, for a brief period, I tried to do my own thing. And You're the voice of the yeah. band. Yeah, so. I worked out that basically that, you know, I would have to pay back any and all of that money that he'd trousered before I'd see any money, any additional, you know, I would have to recoup on his behalf before I would see any money out of publishing going forward. So I moved back. You're married to an American woman? Yeah, I got married because literally we had... Because when we'd arrived there with the band, we'd got visas, you know, to promote material and, you know, we... Oh, that's we, good. Yeah, we'd got, we'd, got, we'd got proper work visas at the time and um, we were, we'd, we'd played bit, part, you know, bit parts in movies and stuff, literally just standing around in the back of films and what stuff. What film was that? Oh, God. The Clash did that in um, at a Scorsese film, didn't they? Uh, yeah. King of Comedy. Oh, God, what was it? I... I, uh, I love 80s films, I've got to know. It was called Highway to Hell. Okay. It was an absolute piece of shit film. <laughs> nothing to do with ACDC? No, no, no. They might have used the track in it, but yeah, it got nothing to do with ACDC. It had Rob Lowe in it. Uh, I'll have to look that up, maybe yeah, drop a clip terrible. in. Oh my God, so bad. But yeah, we were sort of extras in that. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, this, is, so this is, I sound like, it feels like I'm narrating a, you know, it's an audio book. A movie. Ah, sorry, man. No, no, sorry, but no, but not in the epic sense. It's yeah. just this is amazing. Oh, and we're in a movie. Yeah, so we're in a like, movie. Yeah, and uh, Patrick story. Bergen was in that famous actor who was in it as well. I don't know. Oh, he was the baddie in um, Sleeping with the Enemy when yeah. he had a tash. Yeah. He was quite scary. Yeah, 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 he was in it. He played uh, he plays the devil in it. So oh, yeah. yeah, but it was a piece of shit film. Highway to Hell. A winding that stretches from here to eternity. Kansas anymore. Discover the warm, energetic, inventive, and friendly inhabitants of hell. Can you tell me the quickest way to hell? Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Really was terrible. Definitely gonna watch it. But we got... I love shit films. We got uh, paid well to do it, and we got... Uh, we got the, you know, visa extensions okay. through our agents on, on, on the back of that. Yeah, basically the immigration people just knocked on the door at the end oh. of the, the... They literally, you know, came to see me and said, your visa's running out, what's your plan, what are you doing? Oh. I said, well, I'll be in touch, and, you know, obviously I'm speaking to my agents to see what the plan is. Uh-huh. And, uh, and get out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> so basically that my... My girlfriend at the time was like, she said, she said, you know, are you ready to go back yet? And I said, no, I'm not. I don't know. I'm just too confused here. I don't really know what I want to do yet. So and you're like 28 or something? Yeah. You know, we did split up probably about 18 months after that. And we're still friends to this day. I had probably the most fun 18 months of my life. In California? Yep. I basically... I. Uh, I've always been into cycling. You know, right from when I was a little kid, I've always been into cycling. I was spending a lot of time, you know, mountain biking up in the hills, and road biking, and um, it was about that time that I, you know, I was talking to the guy who runs a local bike shop, and he's like, look, you don't know what you're fucking doing. Just come and, you know, it's in Beverly Hills. So like, These guys, they love British accent. Why don't you come and work in my shop? So yeah. I spent 18 months riding bikes selling bikes talking about bikes fixing bikes and I absolutely loved it it was the most stress-free period of my life yeah it was a great time it was a really great simple time and that right it or not yeah is where I met 
Bruce Springsteen. Okay. Yeah, so comes in and you know him. Are you a fan of him? Yeah, I've become quite a big fan of the boss. Yeah. And also, directly behind where this bike shop, uh, Slash from Guns N' Roses at his flat. So weirdly enough... Um, uh, Axel Rose. Axel Rose, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was having a brain fart there. Uh, every now and then, you know, Axel used to just come in the... You know, their flat was behind. He used just to come in and come in and just like walk around the shop, just completely stunned, going, man, man, wow, these bikes are really cool. And like, like this is surreal. He's another like, nutcase. Yeah, another nutcase. Axel Rose wandering around, sort of, goo, you know, just looking at all these mountain bikes. He had never had any intention of riding ever in a million years. Or buying one. Too stoned. But, you know, quite weirdly, it's like, you know, we'd be out the back of the shop on our brakes. We used to hear sort of slash like, playing his guitar in the flat behind so that was quite bizarre so what happened with Bruce Bruce I'm in there one day this guy comes in I didn't recognise him straight away had a hat cap on I can't remember if he had a cap on or not I just wasn't trying to hide himself people out of their normal environment yeah sometimes it just doesn't click yeah so Bruce is and this is like 92 or something so he's not the born in the USA Bruce now he's kind of a dad no and yeah he's there and he I sell him a I'd buy for his kid and you know it was quite a small one so he had quite a small child at the time so it was really interesting you know sold him a bike and thought that's been really great it's like you know I'm meeting more people in there and you know it's him or when did you realise it's him oh okay. you know so it was, uh, it, I was actually halfway through selling him the bike before I actually twigged it was just his voice and I'm like right. you know that thing where you see someone coming towards you yeah and this has happened to me a few times where someone's coming towards me and you think you're like, oh, where do I know that? But you're yeah. thinking, you're not thinking this is Bruce Springsteen. You're yeah, thinking celebrities oh, are weird. This is the guy, you know, is that the guy from the shop up the road? You know, you're, I'm thinking more at a local level. You know, it's, it's only halfway through selling the bicycle, listening to his voice, going, oh my god, of course it's bloody Bruce Springsteen. Of course, when he gives me the card to pay for the bike, it's just like, yeah, it's Bruce, it Bruce, Bruce Springsteen on his card. His fucking card. So yeah. yeah. So then. I didn't think much of it. I just thought, that's amazing, you know. Six months down the road, my, um, I was at the big uh, sort of Azteki-style music venue in Los Angeles. I was watching my friend's band there, side of stage, a band called the Havelinas. All of a sudden, I look round to the side of me, and this guy, I look round, this guy's waving at me. He's not waving at me. And again, it's just, I'm having this, like, oh, is that the guy from the, from the supermarket up the road, you know? It's like... It's only when Patty leaned in, you know, and turned, and I could see this shock of red hair, I realised, it's Bruce Springsteen recognising me, not me recognising Bruce Springsteen. It's like, yeah, oh, like, here's a guy that runs into millions of people every day, yeah. is more, more in tune Who with... Who are hyperventilating, because yeah. yeah. they see him. Yeah, yeah. it's just like, yeah, he recognises the guy that sold him a bike six months ago at the bike shop, and I, it took me... Must have been a good bike. It took me, like, a week to click, you know, it took me, like, a... Proper, a proper good 10, 15 minutes for the penny to drop that the guy that was waving at me that I'd just sold a bike to six months ago. So you, didn't, you did wave back, though? Yeah. And you didn't speak to it? No, I told him to fuck off. No, um, no, it's just, yeah, we had a good laugh and joke. I said, all oh, right, yeah, I do a chat with him. But again, just these surreal things. It's like, oh, I think half of the surreal things that have happened, you know, quite often weren't in the, like, the obvious places where, you know, like, mm. you know, the music... But we always come back here. So shortly after this, you came back. How come? Yeah, I just basically, I, I, LA's a really weird place. It's like a suburbia, isn't it? it There's is, no centre. It is, but also it, it is like living in a time machine. Right. Because 
you've just got the way, you don't have seasons there so you've yeah. got no clock you know here you know spring's coming you know autumn's coming you're you know, begging for spring here yeah but yeah. the point is you know you, you've got this inbuilt thing of telling you like time's ticking time's moving on time but there you know two years go by and it's gone like that you don't even realize it because you don't have those markers mm. so i came back for a visit and it was my first time back in the uk in seven years in summertime and i just fell in love with it again i just thought mm. you know what i know it's only like this for like a month tops but i'll take a month of this once a year and then boom that's when the whole life number number two started um just living above a music venue in king's cross my mate's uh music venue was called the splash club it yeah. was at the water rats in king's cross yeah oh you were living above that yeah and it was kicking off i mean like literally oasis had played there yeah. and that was oasis first london yeah. gig so yeah. were you there i wasn't there this happened about six months before i got there yeah, yeah. so it's um, like 94 type yeah type. yeah, yeah. Set good time to come back here nine months before that but literally all the breaking bands were playing there mm. like you know there were bands like Cooler Shaker and Ocean Colour Scene and yeah. uh, God um, Feeder you know it was all just anything that was breaking that's where they were playing their show first it'd become a real hotbed and this stuff I think had happened more by accident than design yeah. and my mate at the time cut a long story short basically the guy that was like the main owner in this venue he was just about to get a record deal with a band and he just totally turned his off the ball and um it was being run so badly that after time I, i started getting involved just because i was living upstairs i'd walk through the club to go in and out of the place i had no intention of getting involved with it but it was being run so badly i couldn't help but sometimes. this is water rats yeah okay. yeah i couldn't help but sometimes to just go like you know step in going what are you doing you know what was you know i i ended up getting in slightly involved with that by accident rather than design just because i just couldn't bear to see it so you lived upstairs yeah and it was being just run so poorly and it's like it was so successful but like how i don't know and then um yeah basically because my mate had taken his eye off the ball with the freeholders there was a dispute and the the the, the brewery basically just took the pub off him they mm. just said you're out and i was living above there are all these people living and working there everyone else was just sort of like running for the lifeboats you know me and me and this other guy jeremy we just kept our cool and just went well what do we want to do do we want to you know i was all of a sudden didn't have anywhere to live so we literally we just corralled all the people that sort of were worth corralling yeah and um found another location which was in uh in Camden it was a, a pub called the Falcon and that was the original site of the first barfly so you started the barfly yeah yeah so then you come like a key person in 90s Camden which yeah. is a big thing yeah yeah i mean we booked i mean i bought, bought i just last thing i did before i came out as I, i hit a quick a couple of printouts of some of the bands that we uh, we booked at the time Um, and you booked them or you're running the venue yeah no i booked the bands initially and they emailed you their management or something oh no we were we were we were like um so we've got shed seven feeder sophia lispector muse stereophonics snow patrol coldplay i suppose they were called the coldplay then were they they were ash doves top loader elbow keen frank 
black from the pixies the strokes i'm only going to do the ones in bold yeah. <laughs> scissor sisters maroon five the killers franz ferdinand i mean everyone from the 90s franz ferdinand right yeah how come our company did i wasn't actually their day-to-day manager but we started a management company called supervision and we picked up we picked up um franz ferdinand and the kaiser chiefs and we actually broke those bands or the company uh, supervision the company did. They, that's your fault yeah it is sorry mate yeah. no they're, they're all right yeah. and what's your favorite bands out of all these and any memorable stories from any of these personal fact i was a big fan of elbow i really oh, like yeah, i just yeah. loved them i thought they were lovely people and i loved their music Coldplay had a really quite good relationship with the band and with the, man- with the manager at the time, a guy called Phil Harvey. And for a while he had his management company was below our company when we had our... when the company got quite big, because out of Barfly it sort of turned into quite a big beast. Um, How are you feeling about this, seeing all these bands when you'd kind of done it? Were you thinking... I, right then, I, you know... People weren't, weren't thinking like that. They want to get back on stage. Get, no, when you're done, you're done. Yeah. I was done. But... Um, the delays, yeah, I remember that. They're from yeah. Southampton. It's probably the most crazy show we did at the Barfly. Because they had a big buzz, didn't oh they? Oh, my God. I mean, literally... I mean, we used to stuff it to the gunnels anyway. We used to take the prop... Over capacity. Oh, piss-taking to the max, yeah. But that was one show where, yeah, not by design again. This was by just, like, the demand of people that, like... I have to be in here and you're like okay this is the agent for some of the biggest bands in the country if I don't let him in he's going to blackball me okay you've got to come in then you know the head of Sony's there you've got to come in oh head of this you've got to come in it's just like there were people that we just couldn't say no to just that was people literally hanging from the rafters it was the insane and how did they get such a Norm from Cheers showed up and in England? Yes, Norm from Cheers. I'm like, what the fuck? And, um, but it was a good show? That was an amazing show. And he, he, he went to get in and I just said, look, guys, we can't. We're full. There is no room. You need like one fire exit per 80 people. Yeah, and he's saying what? Like you're saying you're not going to let Norm from Cheers. And I'm saying, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Not because he's Norm from Cheers. We just don't have any room. Yeah, I mean, he would have taken up the space for like five people anyway. Right, so right. Oh, he's he a dark haired guy, yeah. One of the bar staff ended up letting him in through the back stairs in the end. He was in the video for Black or White as well, Macaulay Culkin, right? Yeah. yeah. I remember, um, I remember coming up the fire escape stairs one day, and there's this scruffy bloke sat on the stairs, and it's like, I look at him, and it's like, I know you, and I said, mate, you, you, smoke, you can't smoke here. It says after the smoking man said. Yeah, and he yeah. sat there on the stairs smoking. He goes, he looked around and he goes, I'm Sean Bean. I'm Sean Bean. And I'm like, Sean Bean, you can't smoke inside. There's a smoking ban. I thought it was Seen Bean. He to me saying, I'm Sean Bean. He just kept, that's all he kept on repeating. He was so off his nut. He's absolutely twatted. But, uh, yeah. But, yeah, it wasn't a, com- you know, it was a really vibey place. And at the time, it, it, you know, we grew into quite a big company after that, but there was a reason behind it, and the reason was that we were just absolutely savagely ruthless. For every, you know, for any other club of its size, if they had two members of staff, we'd have six. You know, in the bookings team, you know, we were just so ruthless in finding out who was next, who was big, who was the best. Right. You know, and we just used to crush 
just anything around us in terms of competition. So you found out who had the buzz and got them to play in your place? Yeah, and then we used it. We had the, like a proper bag of dirty tricks, you know. We'd do media partnerships on top of our media partnerships. We'd do sponsorships on top of our media partnerships. So it's like... This is your idea? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so I was... You know, there were lots of people involved in it, but, you know, I, I was... I was deploying the dirt, you know, that same kind of vigor and sort of attack that, I, you know, when I was, when I, you know, was going to be a musician and yeah. nothing else was going to stop me. You know, we had a, a part, radio partnership with XFM where I'd, I'd installed a full recording studio upstairs above the Barfly, which had live feeds from the stage. Wow. So basically... That's ahead of its time in yeah, the 90s. Yeah, we went back to, you know, XFM and said, look, we'll give you live recordings. Wow for free um, if you partner with us so then that way uh, so we had the um, exposure nights with John Kennedy yeah. uh, where basically you know we would record the, record the sets and he would play them out live on his show what would happen is if you know quite often if it was a band we couldn't get you know well if it's a radio show you don't need to go to the agent you go to you go to the pluggers so I'd have an agent call me up going what the fuck you know I just told you point blank you're not getting this band and I'd I'd just pretend like I didn't know anything about it. So, oh, I don't know. It's the, the pluggers, you know, it's XFM, speak to XFM. You know, so, you got a shrewd business mind there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I didn't know anything about the music business when I started, but I sure as fuck. Sounds like you did. End of it. Yeah. yeah. And you showed me that Hunter S. Thompson quote. It's a music business, a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson and that's true oh man yeah so how did this wind up or what happened next with this so you were an operation there were barflies all over the country we we were we basically we did a I met this crazy guy absolutely lovely guy a guy called Adam Driscoll he'd won Young Entrepreneur of the Year or something he already floated two companies on the stock market he was based up in Birmingham and we were publishing this music music magazine called The Fly at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Right. Um, and it was just a London-based magazine then, you know. And we just, it's like a listings place for what's going on. Yeah, but we used to just do it. We used to just list what was happening at The Barfly and talk about the bands that were booking at The Barfly when it first came out. It wasn't this big national thing. And um, he said, look, I want to work in the music business. He says, I'm very successful. He was very successful. He says, but I'm bored out of my mind. I love music. I want to be in the music industry. Yeah, he, he came down and soaked up some of that and went, this is amazing. And he looked at Fly Magazine. He says, I love the Fly Magazine. And I was thinking about shutting the fly down then because I says, it's starting to take up too much time. He said, don't do it. He says, this, is, this could be massive. And he said, I want to take this national. How's that going to work? He said, I will buy this off you for peppercorn one pound he said i will sign a contract that basically states that you have editorial control and you're responsible for its content and i will provide funding for that and at any point in time where we stop working together then the ownership reverts back to you he was giving me a a deal that basically i absolutely couldn't say no to because Mm. there was nothing to lose that a i was planning on shutting it down anyway B, I wasn't going to lose anything financially. And C, if it all went tits up, then we'd get the name back anyway. Mm. I just thought, that is incredibly generous. So we embarked on this partnership and he just introduced me to more mad people that came up with more mad ideas. And we were going to 
this is before YouTube. This is before the internet yeah. had properly blown up. Like early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Like we're talking 99, 98, 99. Yeah. Um, he came up with this idea. Says, why don't we film these bands? You're booking these bands before they're famous. Mm-hmm. Let's film these bands. Yeah. In the barfly. In the barfly, yeah. and then when they're famous, we'll stream them. Yeah. And we'll make loads of money. And I'm like, stream what? This was still on dial-up back then, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. modems, do you know what I mean? It was just like, streaming meant... So they're music videos. Something the size of a postage stamp, you know, that would fall over every time you tried to play it. And I'm yeah. just... And, um, you know, one of the bands we filmed was Coldplay. Yeah. And it was that weird time where all these dot-com companies were just happening and he said we're going to float this on the stock market and I just looked at him and just thought I don't know what you're smoking but whatever it is I'll have some of that and uh, and I said well what does it involve it means you know for anyone to take us seriously we're going to have to get some seed money together put you on a proper salary you know I'm like what so you're going to pay me what five times what I'm getting paid at the moment yeah you know he went away and raised like a half, you know half a million quid in about 20 minutes and next thing we're all hiring all these staff and doing a pre-float and uh, you know, stock exchange and just it was mad it was just like pie in the sky shit you know? and you're still running the bar fly still running the bar fly at this yeah. point in time it went snowball very quickly we floated on the stock market right about that time the record labels suddenly started shitting their pants over what was then go on to become YouTube or streaming streaming yeah. they just like it's over we're finished we're done and so they all just, they literally turned their fucking howitzers on anyone that was trying to stream anything. Right. So we just basically went to all the shareholders and said, that's not working anymore, we're going to do this. We started buying more venues, bigger venues. We bought the Mean Fiddler Group. Um, which, Vince Power. Vince Power, yeah. It wasn't owned by Vince Power anymore. He'd already sold it to Live Nation at that point in time. But we ended up at that point owning the Hamsmith Apollo uh, Kentish Town Forum, Jazz Cafe. We already had some bigger venues outside of London at that point in time. Went on to buy the Ritz in Manchester, uh, Picture House in Edinburgh. Yeah, we had some big venues. Um, we were growing really, really quick, and we had to do another reflow to, to fund all that. And so our shareholdings were getting smaller and smaller. Um, and it was about this time that Adam had buddied up with this Italian investor and I think he was the seventh richest man in Italy and we were about to do this monster float to end all floats which would have been our retirement funds effectively Right. and it was very close to happening and it was going to be this whole 360 company where we were going to manage the artist, agent the artist do everything with the artist but do it in partnership with the artist so the artist would own his would be in partnership with us rather than like hey we're managing you and taking a percentage we'd be forming companies with these artists and i think bono was an investor in it you know a lot of big people were investing in it basically this is is big shit here this is a turning point in in my life where i really wish you know I, i got very i have regrets like any human being but this is one regret where i really wish i'd been in this meeting Adam had a meeting with this guy that basically hold, held more shares in our company than anyone else at that point in time. 
It wasn't the Italian guy. The Italian guy. Oh, okay. And there was a language miscommunication. Oh. And the guy basically stormed out the meeting and Adam was like, I don't know what the fuck just happened there. Yeah. And what's really frustrating is that I speak Italian fluently. Oh. And yeah, because you're Italian. Yeah. And if I'd have been... What is your real full name? Umberto yeah. Rozzo. Right. Yeah. I'm How did you become B? Uh, Simple. If you shave off the UM at the front and the RTO, RTO you're left with B, and people have been calling me that since I can remember. So, yeah, cool. um, you speak Italian, and I what? Speak Italian, and this, you know, I'm just thinking that maybe if I'd have been in that room, there wouldn't have been the misunderstanding. But basically, he went away and pressed pressed the uh, delete the delete the detonate button, and the detonate button was hostile takeover. So this includes the bar flies, not just this... Everything, the venues, the bar fly, the management... What year was this, 2000, 2001? Oh, fuck. This would... No, this is quite far down the track by then. We're talking 2009, 2010. Yeah. I have to look it up, but... Did you get anything out of this? Oh, yeah, yeah. I got got paid paid out, but it was a sea change because basically what happened was he, he put in this hostile takeover bid HMV we'd sold half of the live music business to HMV at the time but they borrowed so much money to buy us they were already in debt that they were starting to get strangled by their own debt which led to their eventual demise but so they owned half of us and they just panicked thinking who's this guy that's going to buy the other half of the company we don't we don't know whether he's going to be good for us or bad for us, whether he's going to work for us. So HMV panicked and put a counteroffer in, at which point Silvio, this Italian guy, he got, he got weighed out for his shares. We got weighed out for ours, and we all went from being company owners, company shareholders, you know, Johnny Big Potatoes, to being employees. I'd always been the cheerleader sort of thing, you know. They'd roll me out at the investment meetings to sort of out rock and roll everyone, and you know I was still right, drinking. You really been there? I, yeah. yeah, I was drinking then, and you know I, you know, could hold my sauce and would basically, or you know, it was my job to sort of shock the shareholders into, you know, this is rock and roll. Give them, you know, whenever they wanted the rock and roll experience, Adam would just basically sort of wheel me in on the dolly basically and go and what so yeah, you, you were like an aggressive negotiator that was no, half pissed no no it's like me I was the one that would basically take them to the hottest dirtiest oh, okay. sweatiest gigs oh, okay. I was the one that take them to the coolest bars I was the one that take give them the full rock and roll experience you know and I was Shaq Kate Moss booking yeah. the you know I, I was the one that was booking the, the profile shows yeah but yeah that was understood when Adam was there. But the minute we got bought out, Adam went, this ain't a good look for me, I'm out of here. So he just had, he still had a decent clip on the shares. He had more than me at the time because he put more in to start with. Um, so he took his money and said, no, I'm done, I'm out of here. I was sort of last man standing and I still had an, this huge emotional attachment for Barfly mm. and the Fly magazine that I just couldn't let it go. Mm. Um, and they were still paying me. I had a, a young family at the time, and I just started just become a dad. So I just thought, I can't walk away from this right now. It's oh. funny, at the end of the 80s, you're having this thing, and now it's the end of the 90s, and it's a bit similar, yeah? Well, it's the end of 2000. Yeah. 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 But in culture, it was also the end of something at yeah. these times. Yeah. So 
I stuck it out for a while, but it was a painful time. You know, they didn't understand. Basically, had the most three grim years of my time in the music business since I'd been in the band and the band was going wrong. So this was the most grim. It was a parallel. With that, that, that day, that day where that guy packed down the mics. Yeah. ZTT time, so the band was, you know, uh, to the, you know, to the, this point... I mean, I closed like 10 venues in the space of 18 months. You know. There was a private buyout. Because now they're all O2 or something, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, it was a new group of guys sort of took control and basically did a private buyout. And the new CEO, I didn't hold him in high regard, let's just put it that way. But, you know, he didn't waste any time in sort of um, showing me the exit door. So, so I'd gone from company owner to employee to redundant in the space of three years so what's your take out what's your learning of all this roughly oh god would you advise against owning a music venue empire then because that's what i've been trying to do the last few years i know the skeletons you will get with any venue the minute you get it and it is it's proper hunter s thompson territory it's like if you're wealthy enough to buy a freehold on a property right then you're lord of the manor because if anything goes wrong you still have the real estate there's no landlord there's no landlord and you can just you could just sell it so were you the landlord of barfly well some of your group some of the venues we had freeholds on but very few very few were leaseholds and yeah great if you make money from there the people that you are leasing from have are completely entitled to look at your earnings your you know go company's house see what you filed that year and say wow you've done so good you've done so good and you've invested oh i can see you've invested quarter of a million pounds in this property that means the property's worth more and you're doing so well i'm actually gonna increase your rent you have a bad year two years later they don't care about the quarter of a million pounds of just or COVID or COVID or whether you've just been hit by a Mack truck. They don't give a shit. So were you lucky you got out of this before COVID? I know some guys, some of my friends that went on to get freeholds or start their own businesses away from that. But yeah, that's why you see so many pubs and you know, even on any high street, you'll see. Why do you always ask scratch your head? Why do these places come and go so quick? Because you know, people get locked into these ridiculous leases and, you know, they work out that... People are on the internet in their little boxes ordering delivery. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not even that. It's just like, you know, you have any fluctuation. There's no, there's no margin. There's no, you know, landlords don't care if you're having a fluctuation. You sign a lease agreement, you got to pay. That's how it works. Yeah. So after that, I just went, I think you need to do something else for a while. During the fly era... Okay, Fly Magazine turned into quite a big beast at the end. It was doing more than um, Q Magazine at one point in time. Record shot. What the hell happened to that world? <laughs> and it was funded by sponsorship and advertising. Yeah. But it never quite paid for itself. Towards the end, we had this guy called Tom Oldham doing the photography. He's an absolute fucking legend. I mean, yeah. he's photographed everyone from Usain Bolt to Richard Branson to... You name it. He's a top guy. Basically... This was his pet project. You know, he used to charge us minimum to be involved. And he used to do all the lead features and the, and the front cover. Which left us in the murky land of like, okay, well, what do we fill the rest of the magazine with? You know, so quite often we'd use student photographers, a lot of uh, contributors that were just 
writing for the mag because they wanted to be involved with the mag to put it on the CV. So a lot of yeah. junior writers. We had staff writers as well, but you know, it was on a shoestring. You know, it may have been the biggest music mag in the UK at one point in time, but it was being done on a shoestring. So quite often, what would happen? We'd book we'd book a, a, a photographer, student photographer, to photograph a band, and the band would show up and no photographer oh why oh sorry I've got an assignment to hand in at college and I can't make it now they'd tell us like hasn't learnt the uh, logistics of being an adult yeah Yeah. so I'd bought a camera a really nice camera to take you know I was really into photography when I was like really young and after the first few times we got let down by photographers and watching Tom at work who was just inspirational I started bringing my camera to work and just leaving it under my desk at work because every now and then just started taking photographs of these artists. I'd done a, a, a photo shoot for someone for a private event and basically they were like in a position where they were doing, you know, required a professional photographer. They said, look, I hired this professional person. They charged me this much. And they deliver this, and they showed me what they delivered. And they said, I hired you for a personal thing, didn't pay you anything, and this is what you delivered me. And it's just like, there's just no comparison. So they said, next time, can I hire you? And would you, why don't you do this professionally? So it wasn't, I didn't make this choice of like, do I want to be a professional photographer? Someone else made it for me. I just, um, I got asked to do some video work by one of my clients. And then I got some more video work. So I'm doing almost as much video work as I am photography work now. Right. Which is how I met your good wife. Was and now there's the internet where there's a place for all this, but it makes it more disposable now, doesn't it? Yeah. You see it and then it's gone. Yeah. Swipe it away and it's gone. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm making disposable stuff every day now, so it's great. <laughs> it's weird because everybody's a photographer. Yeah. They are. They are. They are. But, yeah. Yeah, they aren't. <laughs> they aren't. The world has truly changed the past 20 years, a lot. But B, huge thanks. It's been amazing. Um, what have you learned? Uh, I learned that I probably talk too much and I probably got too many stories to fit into one podcast. No, but from all the... St- from life. From life. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. I've learned a lot. I've learned... Um, you've got to love what you do. More than anything. Or it won't last. It won't last, and your life, we'll always be looking back and thinking, should I have or shouldn't I have, or what ifs, and life is too short, and it goes too bloody quick. Yeah. It means taking risks, take the risks, you've got to do what you love, otherwise it ain't for shit, it just is for nothing. Great. Cheers. <laughs> that was fun, man, I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. for listening if you fancy it give me a five star review or rate it lots of love see you next time